Amen. Sweet hour of prayer. Prayer is an important part of our walk with the Lord. So um, don't forget about prayer and uh, also reading the Word of God. But also, so because of that, take your Bible and go to the book of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, the very first um, book in the New Testament there in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Um, This is actually part two of last week's sermon, um, The People of God. The people of God, Matthew 21, I want to begin reading right there in verse 12, Matthew 21, 12. And if you're willing and able to stand and honor the reading of the Word of God, I ask that you do so. Um, Look right there at verse number 12. Um, The Bible says, Matthew records here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sat uh, that sold doves. Verse 13 says, And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto him, Hearest thou what they say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, Yea, have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Verse 18 says, Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, that's back to Jerusalem, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever, and presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this moment. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so very much for this passage of Scripture. Lord, um, we just, these words, Lord, just speak to our hearts and they speak to our souls, and we're very thankful that we have them before us. We're very thankful that we have the Word of God uh, to go to and to lean on and to learn from and to use it to, to worship you, Lord. And Lord, we are here this morning to worship you. We are here to lift up the name of Jesus. We're here to um, to sing to you, uh, to bow to you in obedience, Lord, to hear from uh, to hear from your word, Lord. We just thank you. We want to make this moment, this day, all about you this morning as we lift you up and just just keep you forever before our faces and before our thoughts and uh, and our minds and our hearts, Lord. And we thank you for that. Be with the children across the way here, Lord. Lord, may all that we do today be with those that are downstairs. And uh, all that we do today, Lord, may we, may we do it for your glory and for your honor. We love you very much, Lord. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So again, please be seated. Um, we have a, a message here entitled, The People of God. You could call it part two, I reckon. Um, but um, here in Matthew chapter 21, um, we began this, this part um, and with the title source from this chapter. And we see that our Lord's words and His actions 
were and always are a lesson for God's people. They're a lesson for the people of God. In fact, the, the whole Bible, even though it records the lives of, of real people and real lives and going through struggles and, and all those things we have from cover to cover, um, they are all still a lesson for God's people. Paul even said they are written to be an example for us, a reference to the things in the Old Testament. But in this passage, we read about how Jesus cleansed the temple. We talked about that last week, and he, how he went in there throwing some things out that shouldn't have been in the temple to begin with. And Matthew grammatically connected that event with the cursing of the fig tree, which we'll talk about this morning. In both cases, Jesus is dealing with those who are called to be his people. The temple, of course, was designed by God for God's people. Um, And the fig tree, as we will see here in the text, is a picture of the nation of Israel, which is also God's people. Um, There are many people that look through this passage. I've even um, been called out from the pulpit and say, well, Jesus sinned because he cursed that tree. But they fail to understand that the fig tree is a picture of the nation of Israel. There is a point Jesus didn't do anything just because. There was a lesson there, um, and we see it's a lesson for God's people. So the, the first question, and I think it's the first question we asked last week uh, for us, and it really should be a question that we ask on a regular basis from every pulpit uh, that preaches in a New Testament Baptist church, is are you a part of the people of God? Are you God's people? Now, I realize that having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not the main emphasis of the words right here. We see that. But it is the main thrust of this Bible. It is the main thrust of the New Testament that we are to have a, um, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the whole gospel message. So this morning I'll ask, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? And it's really truly a simple question. And I know most of us have, and most of us profess Jesus to be our Savior. I truly hope that is the true statement in all of us. But again, it is a simple question. And I think it's easily understood when we see our place, our individual place, in the big picture of things. Just for example, God created humanity... You know, there in Genesis chapter 1, God created humanity without sin and therefore without death and disease. Um, so, But as a representation of all of us, Adam and Eve, as we very well know, chose to rebel against God, bringing sin and death into the humanity. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, I think summarizes all of that and our demise very, very, uh, very, very clearly. Um, James 1, 14 and 15 says this, that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So this was true of Adam and Eve as much as it is true of Bill and Kiki or or Buck and Jordan and and on and on and on. It's It's true for all of us, with every single one of us. If you have ever sinned, with Romans 3.23 states that you have, the salary for that sin is eternal death eternal separation from God, according to Romans 6.23. So if I can put that in a, in a, in a one-sentence uh, concept, personal sin brings personal death. It brings eternal personal death. But praise the Lord in the highest, God sent His only begotten Son to be our personal Savior, and it's only through Him, through Jesus Christ, no other name under heaven, given among uh, how we find salvation, it's only through Him that we can escape our personal death sentence. You see, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, a familiar passage to you, says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, get this now, to redeem them, to redeem us. 
And of course, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Simple, simple verse, but so revolutionary. That phrase there, should not perish, in John 3.16, is a reference to the eternal death brought on by our choice to sin against God. But hallelujah, the phrase, whosoever believeth in him, provides our only escape. Whosoever believeth in Jesus. Believing and by faith receiving him as your personal Savior brings eternal life. Never get over the fact that you're saved. Never, never get tired of hearing the gospel message. It should bring great joy when we hear of this great story of Jesus Christ. And when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a part of the people of God. Titus 3.5 tells us that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, not anything that we do, but according to His mercy. He saved us. According to His mercy, He saved us. And after Peter wrote about us being peculiar, which we talked about last week, not not weird, but peculiar unto God, in 1 Peter 2.9, he continued in the next verse with, while in times past, we were not a people. We we were not a people that had obtained mercy from God, but because of Jesus Christ, we are now the people of God. God, right there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. And if we individually and collectively this morning represent the people of God, and by the way, we should represent Him tomorrow morning as well, and so forth and so forth, there are some expectations that come with that representation. Anytime you represent something greater than yourself, there is some inherent expectations. And part of our expectations is that we are, like we talked about last week, are, are to be a prudent people. Prudent, again, means that we should approach the things of God appropriately with the right mindset, which is not what happened in the temple, right? They went in there and they were, they were selling things. They were having those ridiculous um, exchange rates with the foreign money and the temple money and so forth. They did not have the right priorities. So they were not prudent. So they didn't have the right priorities we talked about last week. Remember that we are His workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus. The more... That Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 is one of the most powerful, one of the most popular verses, at least in my life. Uh, I had a pastor that, um, how, how I often go to Romans 10, 9, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, he, his go-to verse was Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And that verse has become more and more powerful to me, where it says, We are his workmanship, created in Jesus unto good works. We are saved, recreated in Christ, to work for Him, to do things that always please Him, to do good works, not bad works, good works. So we are to have the right priorities. We are to be a people who are ready to serve. We see that when Jesus came out of the temple, He went right to work by healing the lame and the blind. and, And by the way, we cannot fulfill our purpose for God on this earth without serving other people. It's just not going to happen. Then last week we also talked about how we are to be rooted in the Scriptures And just like we cannot fulfill our purpose for God without serving others, we cannot recognize our purpose for God without being rooted in this book. Look again what Jesus asked them in verse 16. Have ye never read? Have ye never read? You know, God personally wrote to them, and then he had to ask, did you read what I wrote you? So maybe we don't understand it all, the Word of God that is, and maybe there are some passages in this book that trouble us, but may God never have to ask, did you read it? Did you read what I wrote? And then also in verse 16, quoting Psalms, Jesus says, Out of the mouth of babes 
and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. So we are to have a perfect or a mature praise, a mature worship. I mean, look at what's going on. The children in the temple there, we talked about it last week, how the, the, temple, uh, the, the children in the temple praised God, and Jesus called it perfect praise. So the children in the temple were, of course, less mature in their humanity than the scribes and Pharisees, but not in their praise of God. They were perfect, and they were mature in their praise of God. Age has nothing to do with how we can worship God. It all comes from the heart. In just a handful of verses here, God teaches us what He expected from God's people in the temple, which in turn also applies to us today, to the people of God today. We are to have God's priorities. We are to be ready to serve others and Him. We are to be rooted in the Scriptures. We are, and our worship should be in spirit and in truth. But notice as we continue this morning that Matthew connects this episode with the temple to that of the fig tree. We talked about that, 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 that importance last week. Verse 18 states that in the morning, as he returned into the city, notice that next, those next two words there, he hungered. Jesus hungered. Now, when this verse is placed in the general context of the other Gospels, it is possible that this tree, had it produced fruit, would have broken Jesus' fast. He had been fasting for a time, and if you put some of the, uh, the harmony of the Gospels together, we, get, we see a picture, we could paint a picture, that Jesus had been a couple days without eating. He was fasting and praying for God to continue to use him in his flesh, and as he came down to this tree, he wanted, he was truly hungry in the physical sense, like you and I would be. But this miracle also stands alone in the life of our Savior as being the only example the only example in all the New Testament of divine judgment by Jesus Christ. No other place, only this passage in his, in his earthly ministry. So the placement of this fig tree here, of the cursing of the fig tree, near the temple cleansing, Mark puts them in a different order, but both of them have them right after our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's significant, I think. So we see that Jesus returned to the city. He returned to the center of of the nation he had set apart to be a blessing to the world, and he hungered for fruit, and there was this fig tree. Now, I realize that the Bible tells us that Jesus cursed the tree because it did not produce figs, and while Matthew doesn't elaborate on this too much, the tree is a clear reference to Israel. It is a clear reference to it. How, how do we know that? How can we make that deduction? Well, later on in this chapter, we're going to jump down to verse 43, at the end of our Lord's parable of the vineyard, which is also a reference to Israel, Jesus said to those representing Israel in verse 43, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringeth forth the fruits thereof. So our takeaway, that so if we, if we go back to that fig tree, Jesus is coming down, he's breaking a fast, he's going back to the, towards the temple, to the holy place there, and he's hungry, yes, in the physical sense, but I submit to you that he's hungry also in the spiritual sense, not hungry that he's lacking something, but hungry for the fruit that God's people should have been producing. I think we can say that God is hungry for fruit produced even today by God's people. God desires great fruit from God's people today, from, from his people. John chapter 15, verse 8 says, Jesus says, Herein is my Father glorified, 
that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. If we put that together, disciples bear fruit. People who don't bear fruit are not his disciples. But again, Jesus wants fruit. He wants fruit from the fig tree, and he wants fruit from Israel, and that's not what he found as he came down this mountain on this, on this morning here. He didn't find fruit in the tree, and he didn't find fruit in Israel. But look at what he did find. Verse 19 says, When he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves. Interesting. You know, in our garden this year, my wife did a lot of work in the garden this year. Um, uh, she planted a, a short row of sweet corn, maybe, maybe five or six uh, things of corn. And we kind of look forward to the harvest time. Many of y'all have seen some of our harvest, giant zucchini. I feel like I'm living in a promised land, at least for that one zucchini. It's like this large. It's very, very large. 11-pound zucchini. But anyway, we were looking forward to the harvest time, especially for the corn. But only of all the seeds she planted, only one stalk came up. Only one stalk of the corn came up. And it grew pretty good, about five feet. And it was beautiful. It had the tassel on top. Y'all seen corn? You know, let's say I'm, I'm from corn country in the part where I live. When the tassels fall over at the top, it's ready, ready for picking, right? So it had the tassel on top. It even fell over. The green leaves were beautiful. It only had one problem. Not one ear of corn. Not one. Regardless of its height, regardless of how beautiful the texture was in those leaves, not one ear of corn. And other than lacking fruit, this fig tree looked the part. It looked like something that should bear fruit. It was healthy. It was strong. It had leaves. I mean, think about it. If it didn't have leaves, why would Jesus even approach it? If it looked all deteriorated, nobody would approach a deteriorated plant looking for fruit. So it, it professed or it, it showed, it demonstrated to the world all around it that it had fruit. Again, no one would approach it for food if it didn't look like it had food. But even though it looked wonderful, and healthy, it just didn't produce fruit. You could probably see where we're going very easily. And maybe it's best put in the form of a question. Of a question: How many Christians today look the part but don't bear the fruit? I used to be one. We look the part, but we don't bear fruit. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, but the world desperately needs I would say especially today, maybe that's from my perspective, but the world desperately needs genuine Christians whose identity is deeper than just a few leaves on the outside. I mean, think about why the fig tree was created in the first place or why my wife planted a row of corn. You know, in the parable of the fig tree, a different part of Scripture, in the parable of, scripture, a parable of the fig tree, rather, in Luke 13, it was asked of the fruitless fig tree, same scenarios, trees or leaves and all those things. Jesus says, why cumbereth it the ground? Why is it even there? Why is it even there? Why even have a fig tree if it doesn't produce figs? Why have a stalk of corn if no corn is coming out of it or no ears? No wonder the kingdom of God was taken from them and given to a nation bringing forth fruits. There was no fruit. They looked the part. The Pharisees looked the part. They, they wore the right clothes. They, they looked holy on the outside. No fruit. No fruit. No fruit at all. Even though God hungered for them to produce fruit. You know, that word Matthew uses for hunger there in the Greek is similar to what we call, we call crave today. Jesus was 
craving fruit from that fig tree. I mean, again, he's breaking a fast. But I would say that his craving for Israel, for the people of God to bear fruit, is much more significant than his desire to eat a fig. Now, for the record, we add nothing to God. As Psalm 16 states, our goodness does not extend to God, but he greatly desires his people to produce fruit. We are to be a fruitful people. And connecting this sermon to last week's sermon, we talked about how we are to be a peculiar people and that we belong to him, a prudent people, and that all of our lives' priorities are match his. And now we see that we are to be a productive people. And I'll put all these points up here again. We are to be a productive people. You know, this fig tree here should not be a lesson that describes our life in Christ. We are to bear fruit. Turn with me real quickly. Uh, Keep your place there in Matthew 21 and go to the gospel according to John. John chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. A a really a go-to passage when it talks about fruit and bearing fruit. There are a few other ones, of course. This is one of the the more popular ones. John chapter 15. Again, leave your place there, or, or keep your place marked there in Matthew 21. John chapter 15. As you're turning there, I want to tell you that I've been... As many of y'all know, I've been this past week at a, at a missions retreat in Rothenburg, um, the, one of the few walled cities here in Germany. And um, we did a um, lots of, it was, I was telling Edward this morning, that's spiritually refreshing, but there's three times, uh, you, you get preached to three times a day, lots of fellowship, lots of singing, spiritually refreshing, physically exhausting. Um, it's long days, short times of sleep, but this message here, John 15, was the guiding direction for, the, for that retreat. And with the theme of abiding or continuing in Christ. But notice our words, notice our Savior's words here in John 15. I'm going to read uh, maybe down to verse 6, and then we'll kind of look at some passages. We're not going to, this is not a sermon on John 15, but it helps us understand the fig tree a little bit more. Verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. We can park there for a while as well. You are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, he says, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So notice again, verse number one. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husband one. In our context this morning, we see that no longer was Israel that vine, and no longer were their leaders the husbandmen. Jesus became that vine, and God became the husbandman. Because, we, we see the reason why there, because every branch in me, or in the case of Israel, the vine that beareth not fruit is taken away. But notice also that every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Jump down to verse number 5. Jesus again says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. So our takeaway, very clearly, the branch that abides in Christ is fruitful. It's not really that difficult. The branch that abides in Christ is fruitful. I like simple concepts. I am a simple person. I like when I read it that if I abide in Christ, I have fruit. So the branch that abides in Christ is fruitful. 
If Jesus were to walk up to an abiding branch, if you will, and with his hand move some of the leaves away that it's on that branch, he would find fruit, unlike the fig tree. So, And when God sees the fruit that he hungers for, he prunes that branch so that there is more fruit, with the ultimate goal of bringing forth much fruit. In fact, notice the progression there in that passage, the, the progression of growth connected to the fruit. In the middle of verse number 2, the branch bears fruit. At the end of verse 2, the branch bears more fruit. And in verse 5, it brings forth much fruit. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. All of this contingent on whether or not the branch abides in the true vine. The question this morning is not only are you a part of the people of God, are you connected to the vine? Are you abiding in Christ? Are you abiding in Christ? This is a real question, I think, for true, genuine believers. I'm not asking if you're saved. We've already passed that. This is for Christians. We must abide to be fruitful. Do you know, in your heart of hearts, that you have a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ? That's abiding. Are you in love with Jesus Christ? Are you in love with His Scriptures, His church, and even His mission to reach the world with the gospel? Are you abiding in Christ. That word abide is very simple. In its simplest form, means to dwell with, to abide, to dwell with, to spend time with. I mean, to dwell, we can put it in maybe in, in, in our own maybe simple terms, you know, to dwell, to live in the same place together with each other. Um, for example, my wife and I abide together. We live in the same house. We dwell together. We abide um, spiritually, emotionally, physically. I mean, we all abide. To, or we both abide together through the good times and through the bad times. Our lives are intertwined. They're intertwined. We abide with each other. And as Christians, we are to abide or even be intertwined with Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about here. How is our intertwining going with Jesus Christ? Is it know, far apart, still saved, but not where it needs to be. We must abide. There's no fruit without abiding. We are to be abiding in Christ. We are to spend time with Him, to continue in Him, to continue in His Word, even to continue here in His church. Genuine Christians are abiding Christians. They love Him. And the difference between no fruit, some fruit, more fruit, and much fruit is directly connected to our level of abiding in Him, His Word, his church, and so forth. You see, from a distance, this fig tree, from a distance, this fig tree appeared to be thriving. It appeared to be have, have the abundance of fruit and leaves and all those things. But it was only leaves. It was only leaves. When one got closer to that tree, the unfortunate truth was revealed. There was zero fruit. It was actually... A forbidden, it's actually against Jewish law to take, to, to, to destroy a fig tree that produced figs. Against the law in, 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 Ju- in Judaism and when Christ was on this earth. But it was allowed, if it didn't produce, anybody can walk up to a tree that didn't produce fruit and it was clearly dead and rip it out. Don't have to be on your property or not, you can take it down. But it was a criminal offense to destroy one that produced fruit. This one did not produce fruit. When Jesus got closer, you move the leaves away, there was no fruit. And if you and I are not careful, if I am not careful, I can get caught up on how to look like a Christian. In every aspect of my life, 
I know, I know how to look like a preacher. I know how to look like a missionary. I know how to look like a, even a good soldier or whatever it may be. I know how to play that part. We all do. But is there fruit? Again, if we're not careful, we can get caught up on how to look like a Christian in every aspect of our life, but when God looks behind those leaves, He'll see that there's no fruit because there's no abiding. And Christians that are filled with, um, that are filled with, or, or churches rather, that are filled with Christians not abiding in Christ, I was looking for some kind of an analogy here. The only one that, that I can come up with is churches that are filled with Christians who do not abide in Christ are like football teams that seemingly play their heart out on the field, but they never put any points on the board, ever. Yes, they're in the game, but they make no difference. They just play, and they play, and they play, never a point. Never a point. They make no difference at all. And friends, you and I can play this Christian game our whole life, a very long time, But if there's no fruit, we will never make an impact for God in this life. We need fruit. And for the record, just just so we're clear here, there are many types of fruit in the Bible, particular to how the people of God are to be productive. Of course, there is the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. There are seasons in our life when those things are all all the fruit that we have. Oh, I understand that. But make sure there are those fruits, uh, those fruits at least. So there's fruit of the Spirit, and then there's the fruit of ministry. Not just what a pastor or a church does, but as, as individuals, we all have a ministry. There is always somebody we should be trying to reach, trying to pull to Christ, somebody trying to disciple. We should all be in the business about our Father's business, if you will. There is the fruit of ministry, which includes souls saved, believers discipled, and lives rededicated to God for the wonderful cause of Christ. And quite frankly, if we never, if we ever want to put some points on the board, so to speak, in any of these areas, we must abide in Christ. For without me, ye can do nothing, Jesus says. Let's be productive Christians by abiding in Christ. Let's be productive Christians by providing in Christ. This is not a, a call, at least in my mind, to, to grab our bootstraps and get motivated for, for the cause of Christ, and maybe that's a part of it, but it's a call to surrender so God can do a work in our hearts, so He can do something great and we can be productive. It's a call to abide in Christ. May we as individuals and as a church make a difference in this community and beyond by reblooming our commitment, if you will, to Christ to His Word, to His church, and all the things that we know that belong to Him. And then back in Matthew 21, I want you to look at verse number 20. Verse number 20 states that when the disciples, when the disciples saw it, that's the reference to that fig tree, what Jesus did to the fig tree, they marveled. They're blown away, saying, how soon is the fig tree withered away? Now, in the book of Mark, we see that Christ... um, 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 cursed a tree on one day, and the disciples came back actually the next day, um, and they were marveled. In any case, Matthew very commonly puts those things all together, trying to get a point across. But they marveled, saying, how soon is the fig tree withered? But notice what Jesus says in the next two verses. He says, I say unto you, if ye have faith, and doubt not, ye shall not only do which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done, and all things... Whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. So in our outline here, we, we are to be a peculiar people, a prudent people, productive. And I'm going to take this and, 
and apply it this way. We are to be a positive people. I think the, the passage here, of course, it talks about many things, a lot of things. There is much to glean from these two verses that could be preached on and applied over and over. Jesus very clearly speaks of our need for an unwavering faith. He speaks of our need for an unwavering belief in our prayers to God. And while both of those essentials cannot be overemphasized, we need both of them, I would argue that when done correctly, they make us positive people. They, our, our whole perspective is changed. To be sure, that the, the people of God, the people of faith, live in the now. We live in the now. But our hope is not in the now. Our hope is greater than the current circumstance. And that's because our unwavering faith is in an unwavering God. I think many times we miss that. We have faith for faith's sake and not for God's sake. Or not for ours. Our faith is not in faith. Our faith is not in us. It's in an almighty God. A faith in God. We are to believe in an almighty, unwavering God. He who truly believes with an unwavering faith in God, I believe, will have a positive approach to this life. Now, I'm not saying that life will be easy. We know that's not the case. That's not even the norm. Um, but the greater our faith is in God, the higher our perspective is in this life. We kind of, those obstacles that are thrown in our lives, we kind of rise above those because God has enabled us to see it from his point of view. Jesus said again, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall say unto this mountain, get out of my way. Be thou removed and cast into the sea, it shall be done. That is a powerful verse. But let's be honest. Maybe this is just me. When we read this verse, we want to believe it. <laughs> we might even believe that we believe it. But deep down, we, we know that we have some reservations when we see this passage. What? I can move mountains? Anybody ever moved a mountain? Anybody even heard of any preacher or missionary or Christian move a mountain? I've heard of some mountains shake. I mean, the scriptures, of course. But Jesus very clearly says, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall say unto this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and it shall be done. Again, we have some reservations, I think, about this passage. And when we pray our hearts out for a certain mountain in our lives to be, to be moved, and it doesn't happen, it, we struggle with that. We generally conclude that it didn't happen for, for a number of reasons. And here, here are some examples on why we conclude that it didn't happen. Number one, God didn't want to move the mountain probably pretty clear, but God didn't want to mountain, and in the context of this passage here, even though I ask in unwavering faith, God didn't want to move it. Number two, I didn't have unwavering faith. And number three, God wasn't able. I, mean, I can't think of many other ones. Many other, I think all the other reasons or excuses would probably fall into those three. Well, most likely can't be the first reason, as tempting as that may be, because it challenges the truth of this verse. Jesus even makes it clearer there in verse 22. All things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. So it can't be the first one. But it also can't be the third one, right? For Jesus just taught the disciples in Matthew 19, 26, that with God, some things are impossible, or some things are possible, all things. All things were possible. It can't be that one, right? So again, no surprise, probably as I lifted them, the reason for our unanswered prayer generally goes back to our lack of faith. 
and our lack of unwavering belief in our answered prayers. Now, if you remember, this concept is true even during the time of Jesus, during his earthly ministry. In Matthew 13, when it was recorded that Jesus returned to his own country there in Capernaum, verse 58 says that he couldn't do many mighty works. Why? Because of their unbelief. He was able, but their unbelief. Therefore, unanswered prayers are very much connected to our faith. But I submit to you this morning that reasons two, unwavering faith or a lack of unwavering faith, and number three, that God is able, have something to do with our, unanswering prayer, with our unanswered prayers. Now, to be clear, God is able. God is able, period. But I think, just maybe, this is me here, that at least on a practical level, we have difficulty believing that God can. We have difficulty believing that God can actually do something great in our lives. Why do I think this? Because I used to be that way, and in some measures I am still. Most of us, practically speaking here, most of us never attempt anything great for God. We don't even try to move the mountains because we have a fear of failure. We have a fear of God saying no or that our faith is shown to the world to be wavering. We don't want that. Yes, we have a saving faith. We, we even have some fruit, praise the Lord. But it's like our faith needs to be awakened. It's like our faith needs to be, hey, come on, Christian, wake up. You know, 22 years ago, I made a decision to not be a passive Christian anymore. I made a decision to be an active Christian. And what I mean by that, I was living a life that was just reactive. Like, if something happened to me, God would take care of me. But I wasn't stepping out in faith, right? I was, I was you know, the children of Israel there in, uh, in, in, in the Exodus, right? Right before the Red Sea, um, they're waiting. God parts, they move, right? They were never moving until God parted, right? That's reactive faith. But when they get to the cross in the Jordan, Jesus or God tells them, you need to step on the water. And when you step on the water, then I'll part it. That's proactive faith. We need to have proactive faith today. We need to be actively living out the Christian life, not passively waiting for the bad things to happen and have faith to go through those bad things. Step out and, and make some actions for the Lord. Be an active Christian. I made a decision to allow God in that time to stretch my faith. Purposely, Lord, use me, stretch my faith, to stretch my finances, to stretch even my abilities, my patience, and so forth. For him, I proactively gave him my life, and I'll be honest with you, he rearranged everything. (laughs) He changed everything. And one of the best lessons I learned along the way during all of that is that God is so much more bigger than I thought he was. He's so much more, so much more than I could ever imagine. And the longer I serve him today, the greater he is. The more, in my mind, the more able he is. Right? He, his, his ability didn't stop. Right? But the closer I got to him, it's like the magnifying glass. You know, The closer I get to him, the bigger he gets. And the more able he is. God is able. The longer I serve him, the greater he is. And it all boils down to faith. In, in Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to, uh, to please him. And get this next part, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. He is. I would say he's God, 
He's able. He can do those things that we think that he maybe cannot do. He can. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.12 that I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able. I'm persuaded, convicted. The people of God, when we put an unwavering faith in God with an unwavering belief in his ability, the more our prayers, I believe, will be answered. And because of that, the higher our perspective will be in this life. We will have a positive outlook. Now, I'm not saying that everything is going to be great and, and hunky-dory, theological word there, um, but it's, we have a higher perspective. Our, our approach to this life is different. It's in Christ. When you and I go through this life completely confident, completely persuaded that God is able to move every mountain in our lives we can be positive when we are in the valleys. We'll, we will be positive. I mean, think of the soldier, and we'll kind of close here, but think of that soldier who has been promised that he cannot die in battle, right? I mean, I've been, I've been overseas. I've been to some of those places there. If I knew that I have this 10-hour mission, that I knew I had a promise from God, you're coming right back. You won't even be touched at all. It will change everything that I do. I mean, I'm... I'm going to be like Audie Murphy, jumping on tanks and ripping. I mean, all kinds of crazy things, right? God has given us greater promises than that. We can be confident that he will take care of us. And regardless of what he allows in our lives, we know that God is able to move it if he wanted to, but he chose to let us go through that. And if we understand that he is greater than we can ever imagine, that keeps us positive because God is in control of our lives. We can be confident and positive even when we are in the valleys. So this morning, make sure that you know him. Make sure that you have this right priorities. Make sure that we are abiding in him so that we can be productive and keep your head up because we serve a victorious God today, tomorrow, and on and on and on. Regardless of how dark the world is, we serve a victorious God. We will prevail, and that's something to be positive about. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.